Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Kennedy. We're back. Took a little break at the end of the year. Feels like 2020 was a year ago already, doesn't it? Well, today's guest is, I think, our first to have an IMDb page and a significant non-lawyer following as well. Her story is one of following a dream into reality television. And the result is all available for you to stream right now on Amazon Prime. But even if you don't relate to that particular dream, I think you may find some inspiration from her passion and her determination. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Brooke Kamhai, who is a vice president of business development for TSG Reporting in New York City. Uh, she also is a practicing attorney with the firm of Burger Green and Min, and she's a former assistant district attorney in Nassau County. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. So, a lot of our lawyer listeners might know Brooke in her professional capacity, but I feel confident in saying that she's better known in non-lawyer circles, but we will get back to that in a, in a little bit. First, tell us about what you do in the litigation support world. Sure. So um, I work over at TSG Reporting, like you said. Uh, we handle litigation support services from transcription and translation services, uh, mostly focusing on court reporting for depositions, arbitrations, anywhere outside of the courtroom, mostly, where you would need a court reporter, videographer, interpreter. So anytime anyone takes a deposition, we provide the staff there that video records it, that takes the stenography, um, and we take care of all of your scheduling needs for, for those purposes. So what's your day-to-day -day like in that? Are you on the phone a lot with lawyers? Are you? It's, it's riveting. Um, <laughs> so... No, it actually is really fun. So in the in the criminal world, which is the law firm practice, which I don't get to do much of anymore, my clients are people who are usually wrongly accused of criminal activity. Of but this in this world, my clients are attorneys, which I think is great. And it's a lot of fun to get to speak with, hang out, work with all of the people that I went to law school with who are now at the big law firms are clients of mine. So that makes it a little bit more fun um, to get to work with your friends. It's a lot of, especially in a post-COVID world, mm -hmm. remote Zoom mm -hmm. meetings and phone calls where a lot of the job pre-COVID was being out and around and doing lunches and meeting people and going to depositions and a lot of face-to-face -face time. But now there's a whole new defi definition of what FaceTime means in this mm -hmm. world. But it's nice to um, every so often, you know, socially distance, say hello to people in a 3D world. Hopefully there'll be more of that in the future. Soon. Yeah. So tell me what that's been like from your perspective, the transition, you know, the forced transition from in-person to everything going online. Right. The involuntary transition. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. What's cool is that, the reporting companies, at least TSG, did a whole lot of remote deposition work before COVID hit. So there wasn't much of a change. We didn't really have to pivot too much on 
how we handled the work because they had a very solid system in place for how to handle depositions in a remote world before the world became, you know, mandatorily remote. Um, so, so there's a good infrastructure in place for being able to do, you know, Zoom depositions and depositions on other platforms, whatever the law firm um, prefers or uses or has an affinity for. And it's been a lot of doing demonstrations and teaching attorneys how to navigate a deposition with a layer of technology between them and everybody else who would normally be in a room face-to-face -face with them. Mm-hmm. And would you characterize that as mostly dragged kicking and screaming into that <laughs> kind of a role? Or <laughs> Never. I would never say a client of mine ever complains or kicks and screams and is dragged anywhere. <laughs> um, okay, I'll no, say I it mean, then. They were, okay, they were really dragged <laughs> kicking and screaming. I think, you know what, I'm not a super tech-savvy person, so um, I would understand people being dragged kicking and screaming, but I think... What happens is you do a demonstration for someone, and they, they do their first remote deposition, and then they become very comfortable with it. It was like the first time that I ever went to court remotely. You're like, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if I'm going to get it right. Are they going to be able to see me? And mm -hmm. then you go through, and you're like, this is fantastic. And then so you have all these attorneys who do their first Zoom deposition or whatever platform deposition, and then they come back to you and say, Brooke, this is great. And I didn't even have to put on pants. So, you know, if they can live in a world where they can be in shorts or less for, you know, the rest of their future taking depositions, people get used to it really, really quickly. I think the uh, the common kind of discussion out there in the industry is, is a lot of this is going to stay remote, you know, post-COVID, post post-lockdown. Um, do you have any sense, you know, for that when it comes to depositions? Yeah, you know, I think some of it will. I think that when you have these depositions that used to take place in person, especially internationally, where there was a lot of cost to clients associated with, you know, flying halfway around the world and lodging and whatnot, that can't happen right now. I think that there will be cases where remote depositions sort of become the norm for cost-saving purposes for attorneys' clients. But I do think that some people feel the way I do. I think, at least in my personal life, whenever anyone says, you know, let's go out and do something once it's safe to do so and we're all vaccinated, I'm never going to say no to anything ever again <laughs> because I don't want to put it off sure. until yeah. next week and then next week never comes. Yeah. So I think there will be people who are itching to get back out there when it's safe to do so. And, and a good chunk of this will go back to, you know, air quotes, normal. But I do think that people seeing the ease of use of remote depositions, I think that they will continue to use this at least as a solid backup and definitely for a cost-saving measure for, for cases where they would have had to send many, many staff members you know, around the mm -hmm. world and they don't have to do that anymore. Sure. Uh, how, how is it being an attorney, working with attorneys in the litigation support world, does that help you? I mean, I think so. I have taken more depositions than I could ever count before I started in the litigation support world. And so I do think attorneys, especially on certain types of cases, appreciate the fact that they're working with someone who understands the ins and the outs of it and not just a salesperson who is selling a product that they don't fully understand. Because I have been on both sides of it, really all sides of it. Um, and I think that people appreciate that. I think that they know that they're going to be able to reach out to and 
our company has a number of attorneys who are salespeople, and I think that they appreciate that they're reaching out to someone not only who has knowledge of a product and a procedure, but also knowledge of exactly what it means to be taking a deposition. And, and then they can come to you with questions that aren't just sales-related, but that are deposition-related and legal-related, and we're able to help on that mm. end, too. Makes sense. Um, so my apologies for all you non-lawyers who tuned in to hear from Brooke. You're probably thinking, when are we going to get to the real stuff here? Uh, so for those who may not know, Brooke is best known to the general public for her appearance on the long-running TV show Amazing Race. Uh, and this is from the Amazing Race fan page oh, about no. Brooke and her partner on season 29 <laughs> of the show. <laughs> uh, quote, either beloved for being competitive and cutthroat, with their use of U-turns and social strategies and huge fandom of the race, or despised for Brooke's unique way of psyching herself up for challenges, it is tough to find anyone who watched the season without an opinion on them. So, <laughs> you, I've not heard that before. You're, you're well known. Um, um, well, and either, you know, beloved or despised, you know, one or the other. <laughs> there is no so, middle ground with our team. So what is your unique way of psyching herself up, yourself up for challenges? I, I gotta so it's ask funny because I, um, I talk a lot and I didn't realize that I talked so much. And I also forgot there was a camera on me after about five minutes. I have a tendency to talk to everyone and everything. It sort of became a long-running joke and a drinking game amongst my friends where I would have conversations with you know, the other team members, with the, the, the judges, the locals, the stop signs. Like I started talking to inanimate <laughs> objects. And I just don't have you know, an internal monologue. My internal monologue is external. And so... It, I had a tendency to tell myself that I couldn't do things as I was doing them. So it was sort of a joke that if you watched us on mute, I was a very competent racer. But to watch us with sound, <laughs> you would hear me say that I can't do things. But I was doing them as I said I couldn't do things. So I guess that was my unique way of psyching myself up. Um, I didn't know I was doing it until we watched the show because we don't get a you know a pre-screening of anything mm. you don't know how you're going to be edited you don't know what they're going to show what they're not going to show until it's aired for the world so that must I didn't, be interesting. didn't exactly yeah. know that i did that <laughs> you're I a verbal processor not to do that now yeah yeah uh so i understand as well that you've always been a big fan of amazing race and you actually auditioned for the show multiple times tell us about that Yeah, i think it was it was, it was at least f with four different people and probably six or seven times I had to, I loved the show mm. since the very first episode. It started when I was in law school and I remember watching the first episode and saying, I want to do that someday. And so I, ha I auditioned once my little brother and I flew to Houston for like 24 hours just to go into an open casting call. Um, I mm. auditioned with a sorority sister, a girlfriend of mine. Um, my little brother, another friend of mine, an ex of mine. <laughs> we, I just really wanted to get on. And then I finally, and I, to this day, he says I owe him a present. But I was out in the Hamptons several years ago. And there was a, a guy who was on the current season who was at the same bar that we were at. And I recognized him immediately. His name is Jelani. He's also a lawyer. Hey, Jelani. Um, and he was at the bar. <laughs> 
and he knows the story so I can tell it. And he came to the bar. I was with a group of girlfriends and I, they all knew how much I loved the race. I had auditioned with one of them. I had roped her into doing an audition with me and he was at the bar and I said, guys, we have to get his attention. Like to just go with me here. So we started talking loud enough for him to hear. And I made them be a little bit flirty and he came over and I was like, how do I know you? I know you from somewhere. Where is it? And I was like, oh my God, you're on The Amazing Race. And, you know, we built up his ego a little bit. And I said, I just applied for that show. And he said, you know, give me your video. I'll send it in. And he sent in my video again for me. And mm. that led to getting a call from the casting director. And ultimately, I believe, is what led to me being cast on the show. So wow. he says I owe him a present. And I probably do. <laughs> What is the auditioning process like? Are you oh. just filming yourself and, and sending in a tape or what is it? So you start with filming yourself and sending in a tape. Um, I think I probably did 10 videos over the course of time because once you finally speak, to, I mean, sometimes they don't, you don't hear anything back. But once I was finally in talks with the casting people, I did a, my first video had such production value. <laughs> it was so good. My sister-in-law <laughs> scored the whole thing and it was, it was really amazing. And they were like, no, we don't want this. And so the second one had a little less production value. Finally, the one they wanted was just the one they, they appreciated. And I got a message from the head of casting saying, yes, that's what we wanted was just me sitting in front of my girlfriend's fireplace in her apartment, drinking tequila and telling them why I would win the show. They wanted no production value. They just wanted raw, honest, hmm. tipsy information. <laughs> and so that's the one that worked out. And, and that's what led to, you know, beloved or despised. <laughs> Uh, so what was it like when you were actually selected did you get a call and they said congratulations you're going to be on the show so I got a call I was taking my dog to the vet so I remember being on the corner about a block from the vet and I got a call from the uh, LA number and they picked up the phone and the casting person who I was working with said okay how would you like to travel around the world? And I said, oh my God, I'm going to scream. And he said, you can scream, just don't scream. I'm going to be on The Amazing Race. So I'm on the corner of 26th and 6th in New York City and I just start screaming, but I'm taking my dog to the vet. So he hangs up and he says he's going to call me later. And I walk into the vet and I remember saying to the vet, do we have doctor-patient confidentiality? Because <laughs> I had to tell somebody and I knew I wasn't allowed to tell people. She said, yes, I told the vet. So you weren't even allowed to tell people you were going to be on the show? No. I, my, my parents and brother had to sign waivers because they knew I was going away, that they wouldn't speak about it. Hmm. And um, the company I was working for at the time uh, knew, gave me a leave of absence for a month. They didn't know all of the details, but they knew enough to give me a leave of absence. And um, other than and them and the vet, nobody knew. <laughs> and the vet. So how long was it? Was it a full month? Yeah, so I took the month of June off in 2016, which is when we filmed, and we traveled for, I think it was 23 days of filming, and then you were sequestered for almost a week before that doing, hmm. you know, final medical exams and psych evals and all those, like, learning the rules and briefings before they said, okay, tomorrow at noon, you have to be packed and ready and in your starting line outfit, and we're going. You, you did psych evals and... And other testing oh, yeah. and things before the show? Oh, yeah. Everyone gets evaluated. Oh, wow. It's pretty extensive um, 
conversations. You have to get all your vaccinations. You have to make sure that you're, you know, physically fit. And still, I mean, I'm like, I was like the least physically fit. I took a couple of rowing classes and climbed a rock wall and took some spin classes. And I'm like, I got this because I don't know how familiar you are with the amazing race, but I was convinced there was going to be, you know, a team of people in their sixties or seventies or one team of people who had, you know, never left the United States. And I thought I had a leg up on people. Meanwhile, our season was ultra marathon runners and all the <laughs> yoga instructors and crossfitters and me who, like I said, took a spin class and was like, I got this. It is so much harder than it looks on television. <laughs> so then you're, did they fly you out to the initial spot and say, go? Is that? Yeah, they fly you to LA and we started in LA. So they flew us to LA. Um, you handed over your cell phone when you landed. I got to, you know, you get to call your parents oh, really? and say, I'm here safe. You, oh yeah. You hand over your cell phone, they hold it for you. And then you're sequestered and you're going through all of those steps of your final shots and um, speaking with the executive producers and learning how to rip open a clue and all of the little things that they do behind the scenes, but taking all of your promotional pictures. And then they say, okay, tomorrow's the day. Be ready to go at X time in your room. And, and then you, then you start. And then you're basically filmed uh, you know, mostly 24 seven after yeah. that. You're filmed when the, when the leg is going, you're filmed the entire time. So for the first leg of the race, it lasted, I think it lasted like 30 some odd hours from, from the start line to hmm. including the flights that we had to take and maybe 24 hours, definitely more than a day. And you had 11 teams being filmed for 24 hours and it made it into a 40, 44 minute episode. So the amount that they use wow. compared to the amount that they film is minuscule. Do you have somebody constantly sort of taking notes on, yeah, let's use, let's use this because how else are they doing it? They're watching so, hundreds and hundreds of hours for every. I'm sure the, I episode. mean, the, I will say that like the heroes of this show are the cameramen and the sound people, camera mm. people. We have, none of ours were women, but, um, I know that there have been. So they are running with you the whole time. And one of the things that the show has you do before you start during that sequester week is they have you lift up the camera and the sound equipment just so you can appreciate and understand what hmm. the camera people and sound people have to carry. It's absurd. They are running sometimes <laughs> backwards faster than we are easily carrying, you know, these cameras are heavy, but the sound people not only are carrying all the sound equipment, but the extra batteries. And it's got to mm. be 50, 60, 70 pounds worth of gear and outrunning us easily. These people are the most physically fit people that I wow. think I've ever met. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, so what was it like actually being on the show? You know, what was your, because you don't see everything. You see your perspective. Uh, what, what is what that like? What was it like, like um, watching it back? or No, just being there, doing it. Oh, surreal. I mean, I remember very, very clearly the very beginning when Phil, who's the host, he says the same thing before every season starts where he says, you know, the world is waiting, travel safe. And then he says, go. I very much remember feeling like I floated out of my body and watched it happen. <laughs> 
because I had been dreaming of that. I mean, there are a couple sure. moments that you know you're going to be on the show and you're like, okay, there are these iconic moments. You know you're going to make it to the starting line moment. And then all I wanted to do is make it to the final three because that was the goal, make it to the end of the race. And once you make it toward the end, you're like, oh, my God, we could actually win this. Mm -hmm. And then there's that moment where, you know, you're going to be running toward the end and that moment of seeing him and seeing nobody else on the carpet and you're the first team to get there. So there are a couple moments that you that you dream about. And we actually got to live all of those iconic mm. moments that you dream about. So I feel very, very lucky. That's cool. What was yeah. the best place that you got to see experience? So um, my ancestors are Macedonian. So I, when they said to you, where do you want to go? I was like, I would love to go to Greece, like that general area of the world. And we actually got to go to Greece. So when I found out and we ripped the clue open, said that we were going to Greece. I was beyond excited. It was so beautiful. It was one of the legs mm. of the race where we had to drive ourselves. And so, and fortunately we didn't get lost, which is a big deal for us. And <laughs> the scenery from, it was a several hour drive from this little town called Arahova to Athens. And just the scenery of like off the sides of these cliffs and mountains was incredibly beautiful and just to get to experience that was was cool we also got to go to mm. norway which is probably the prettiest place i've ever seen on the planet there were all these amazing fjords that came out of the water and it was very very picturesque i yeah i feel like we had a really good route i was really lucky did you feel like you actually got to experience it and appreciate it or were you just concentrated on the task so much that you kind of let it blow um, by I yeah, I think there were places we got to experience. I think the legs where we got to drive ourselves around, like Greece, um, we got to experience Panama, which was the first leg. Every person got lost. We literally drove. We could not drive any further in the country. We made it to the end and had to turn around. Police turned us around at the end. So um, we definitely experienced that one. We drove around in Norway, too. I think it's why I like those legs the most is because we got we were sort of in charge of our own destiny of, of what we saw and what we didn't. Mm -hmm. That being said, I am a very type A person and was paired with a very type A person. So as much as we wanted to say, you know, look out the window and enjoy it, we did those moments while we were driving at top speed. So sure. yes and no. Which, uh, which places, place would you most want to go back to? Um, let me think about that. I, we spent a little bit of time in Zanzibar and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. That was gorgeous. I'd love to go back to Africa. That was really, really beautiful. And we spent a short amount of time in Seoul. We did a night leg in South Korea, which I thought was really, really great. Um, I would like to go back there and explore a bit more. The culture there was really, was really cool. Now, how do they account for jet lag when, <laughs> when you're doing this? You know, you don't actually really feel, at least I didn't really mm. feel jet lagged. I was such a fan of the show that there wasn't, you don't feel, you're exhausted, but you're not really jet lagged. You're not in any place long enough, I don't think, at least for me. I wasn't in any place long enough where I felt that, that I felt jet lag. You just never knew what time it was. It didn't really matter. Mm. The adrenaline was just pumping so much all the time that I didn't care to sleep. I was living my dream. So <laughs> That's great. What was the, uh, the biggest culture shock 
that you experienced? We, huh. we went to, we went to Vietnam and we got there and it was sort of toward the end of the race. It was the ninth and 10th legs of the race, but this is the ninth leg was um, like metropolitan Vietnam. And we got in our taxis and you see everyone is riding on these scooters, like mom, dad, three babies deep on a scooter. And I just remember being like, oh, wow. somebody needs to put a helmet on everybody. Like this, <laughs> I don't know how there are not multiple crashes a day. It's like this beautiful, um, like symphony of, of traffic moving and perfect harmony. It was really incredible how I, I don't, I don't know. Everyone just sort of works in conjunction and harmony together and it just sort of mm. flows. And I remember thinking, this is incredible. If this were New York, there would be a lot of car accidents. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those videos you see of, of with the mass chaos at intersections. Yep, exactly. On scooters and exactly. And so when you were shooting the show, were you ever thinking about what the audience would think? No. No. <laughs> I forgot there was a camera on me in about five minutes. I, anyone who watches probably knows that I forgot there was a camera on me about five minutes. I mean, I didn't have – and I think that's sort of the beauty of it. I think that there are definitely people who were aware that they were going to be on TV. For me, I didn't care if the show ever aired but for the only reason I cared was you don't get paid unless it airs. Mm. So I never wanted to really be on television. I didn't care about that part. If The Amazing Race was never televised, I still would have wanted to do it. For me, it was I wanted to run the race because I just thought it was the coolest experience and I wanted to experience it. Um, you know, the money part was gravy and that's awesome. And the TV part was cool. I mean, but you saw what was written. Not everybody loved us. So I didn't need to be, I didn't sure. need to be televised. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about how the show turned out. Today's show is brought to you by Disco. Disco offers world-class engineering with a deep love and respect for the law. Initially developed at a litigation boutique in Houston, Disco was born out of the firm's frustration with conventional e-discovery tools that were slow and difficult for lawyers to use. Instead of being forced to adapt their work methods to technology, they wanted to invent technology that works the way lawyers work. Disco was the result, and today they're the fastest growing e-discovery solution in North America. As a leading provider of software-as-a-service solutions developed by lawyers for lawyers, Disco is reinventing legal technology to automate and simplify complex and error-prone tasks that distract from practicing law. Disco has been embraced by more than 500 law firms, including 135 of the top AMLAW 200, corporate legal departments, and government agencies worldwide as their first choice for innovative technologies that enhance the practice of law to help secure justice and win cases. And now, back to the show. Well, welcome back. Uh, so not only did Brooke compete on the show, which would be cool enough, but she and her partner actually won season 29 of Amazing Race. What was that like? I will never 
ever, ever forget the moment. So our race ended in Chicago and I remember, so there are some things as a super fan of the amazing race that we knew to do Our myself and my partner, Scott, we're both big fans of the show. And there are a couple of cardinal rules that I personally think you have. When you make it to the end, one of the things that you should always do is check your backpack because you don't need it anymore. So when we were getting on the last flight <laughs> to Chicago, we hung back for a second. We let everybody else get on the plane and then we gate checked our bags because I said, you know, I need to have as much of an advantage as possible. So let's check our bags. We'll get them at the airport after. And honestly, who cares? If they get lost, we're mm -hmm. going to win a million dollars. I was very <laughs> intent on it doesn't really matter. It's just a backpack and we'll check them. So I remember getting on the plane and one of the other teams said, you know, where are your bags? And we're like, oh, we checked them. And they were like, oh, no. And they were going to leave theirs on the plane. <laughs> but you're not allowed to do that. Okay. So we checked our bags. And I remember at the very end, it was a whole leg of running around Chicago. And the show did a great job of showing a huge map. We had to run a lot. And it was um, right before July 4th weekend in Chicago. And while Chicago is not a notoriously hot city, it was really, really warm. And it was mm. exhausting because it was a lot of running. It was a whole leg on foot. And I remember getting the very last clue. We were in Wrigley Field. We did our final big memory task, which was great because I knew I'm not super fast. I'm not super strong, but I have a very good memory. So I knew if we made it to that point, and we were toward the front that we would take it home. Mm -hmm. So we did our last memory task. We finished and we got the last clue, which like I said earlier, there are some things that never change. The last clue before the finish line always says, you know, finally the finish line, it tells you where it is. And then it says, go, go, go. And when I got to read that clue and we got a taxi right out of Wrigley Field and we were going to the finish line, Scott and I were in the back of the cab and we were just bawling. Like we had this moment of <laughs> exhaustion and excitement and we were talking about how, you know, we both watched the show with our families, how our mothers were going to be losing their minds about, he said at the beginning, he didn't think that we would win because, you know, I'm not really fast. And he ate his words. And it was just this beautiful moment of we got to this park at like Navy Pier overlooking the water. And it was so beautiful. And we knew we were in first place at that point. And as we were running in, the teams were cheering. And I remember seeing the, the huge mat at the end. And we just had like, we got to the mat and Phil, the host, you know, says his thing where he tells you, you know, how many countries have. So it, for us, it was nine countries, 17 cities, 36,000 miles. And then he says, you're the official winners of the amazing race. And we just both, I was bawling. He screamed. It was like this pure, <laughs> just carnal moment of we both people, you know, people don't usually get to live their dreams. And mm. this was. When I was in college, uh, not college, when I was in law school, I made a list of, you know, 30 things to do before you die. And number, there wasn't an order, but the second one on the list was run the amazing race. And wow. I got to run it. I got to win it. And it's just a moment I will never forget. And I'm just so lucky that I'll have it, you know, recorded for the rest of my life. So that's great. Was, I mean, yeah, I was wondering about that kind of moment because in, you know, in real life, you don't have the music. You don't have the you know climactic kind of you know editing up to the up to the end. I was wondering if it was you know even anticlimactic, but it doesn't sound like it for you. No, <laughs> no, we got there and we were you know you're doing that last little run to the end. I mean, maybe if we hadn't gotten there first, it might have been a little anticlimactic. Mm. I don't know. Sure, I don't know. But to get there, <laughs> never and know. To, 
thankfully, to get there and realize not only like did you live your dream of running it and getting to the end, but they're going to cut you a check now. And mm-hmm. like you've accomplished something that you like the the competition that we had in our season, they were all really strong, really young. I was the second oldest girl on the season at 36. Like there, and the only girl was, other girl was a year older than me. And she was like an army veteran. Like I, this, it was stacked with very physically fit, um, people. And so it was, it was really, really satisfying to, to get to live the dream and to have that moment of watching him tell you that you've won and, and no, definitely not anticlimactic in any way. (laughs) Was it difficult? I, I imagine you didn't get to just tell everybody. At that point, you had to you had to wait. We couldn't tell anybody. So it's interesting because, you know, you normally race with someone that you know. So my season was different. Normally, it's people with a pre-existing relationship. My season was 22 individual people who came on to race, and you got paired up at the start line with a stranger, and then you went racing. So I think part of the, the cool part of all of this is that since we had to wait a year between filming and airing the finale – we all got really, really close. We didn't have somebody in our mm-hmm. household or in our lives to talk about it with because we didn't race with someone that we knew. We had you know, a group chat and, and 21 other people who were in the exact same situation who didn't have mm. that relative or that significant other to talk about it with. So it made our cast go really, really close for that year. And a lot of us are still really, really close. So it was nice to have that secret that only you know, 20 other people plus sure. production in the yeah. world knew about. That's cool. Uh, how? What was the reaction like after the show aired among the people you know? and uh, Among the people I know, it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> among strangers, it was, you know, half beloved, half despised. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. I, my, my family, my cousins used to get together and they would send pictures from like a weekly viewing party. Mm. Um, my parents had a huge party the night that the finale aired. And they... They knew, but they didn't know. Like I, mm-hmm. it was never confirmed for them. Um, it's funny because when we got back, I had just I had been looking to buy an apartment, and my parents lent me at that point the money for the down payment, and I said I'll pay you back, and I did ultimately pay them back. But we got to the end of the show, and I think my my dad assumed that I had won because I owed them this chunk of money, <laughs> and I said, you know. It's gonna take me a really it's long coming. time to pay you back, Dad. It's not. I don't. I can't guarantee you that anything's coming. He's like, oh no, but it worked. It worked out. It worked out. Um, and then amongst people on the street, it was actually really cool. More people than I realized watched it. People would stop me on the subway and say, "Congratulations!" You know, mm. as the show was airing, or what's going to happen next week. And I was actually in San Francisco a few days before the finale aired, and there was a group of girls across the street who just yelled my name and came over and started asking about the show and they were really, really everyone to your face is very, very kind. Not Some so much in the internet its, chat boards. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. I mean, did you find among your clients that it was well-received or kind of a big deal? Um, attorney clients? Yes. Other clients, I don't think really cared that much. Um, I had a jury once I had to have two jury members were excused. Um, oh, really? they were big fa- cause they were big fans of the show, which is unfortunate because <laughs> I would have liked to have kept them, <laughs> but what are you going to do? So they in voir dire, they, uh, 
they said they're going to go your way no matter what, basically. <laughs> I mean, they didn't quite say that, but they were really big fans of the show and big fans of our team. And uh, the other side used it to get them removed. But that's okay. Trial still worked out. So what's one of your sort of best memories of being actually on the show, doing the tasks, things like that? So... Oh, so there were a couple of tasks that were very difficult. I think there was one task in particular in Africa. There are these things called roadblocks where only one team member can do a task. And once you pick that team member, so they don't tell you what the task is. They just give you like a little hintlet. Um, and once you pick the team member, you can't change. Um, so there was this one in Africa where it was just like brute force strength where we had to make a ladle from a piece of sheet metal and like really dull garden shears and it was just it was very mm. difficult for someone with my physical grip strength and upper body strength <laughs> so I think that's one of the things that was sort of harped on by people who watched the show where I had some other you can't have your partner help you you can't have anybody who's not in the task help you but other teams with their partner doing that same task are allowed to help each other. So yeah. I did get some help from some people, but there were times where I helped people too, and it sort of worked itself out. I think that was one of the things where the despised people um, were like, <laughs> she got help on a task that shouldn't be allowed. And, you know, it is, so they should get over it. But um, <laughs> I think my favorite task that we had to do was something that isn't, it's not really talked about that much. So we were in Venice, which was the seventh leg of the race, which was the first leg that was, really much more artsy than it was physical. And for me, I was a musical theater major in college. I sang opera straight through college. I sang in Italian a lot. And one of the opera. tasks was we had to sing in Italian in a gondola. And I was like, this is for me. And then <laughs> the roadblock on that leg of the task was we had to, we went to this uh, Commedia dell'arte like theater room and we had to pick um, an actor and recreate their mask, like just following the, it was very artistic. Hmm. And I was the one who was tasked with doing that task, and I walked in in last place, not really realizing I was in last place, but I jumped over two other teams, one team where she's one of my closest friends in the world, but she's an artist by trade, and I jumped over her and another <laughs> one of the other teams. So going in last but jumping over two teams was a really, really big deal because it stopped us from you know coming in last that leg mm -hmm. of the race. But also it was one of those things where – I just, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm artistic and good at following directions and I, you know, walking in last and, and walking out and seeing my partner's reaction when I, you know, jumped over a couple other teams was just, it, it felt really good to feel like I contributed a lot that leg of the race and, sure, and I yeah. like that one. Venice was, was a lovely place. I would go back there immediately. And, and sing on a gondola. Oh, in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of my favorite things that I did just because... It was something that, well, I'd never sang on a gondola before. Like foreign language and singing in a foreign language and stuff like that was something I was very comfortable with and something I was familiar with. So it didn't feel like I've never made a ladle before. How do I do it? It was, you know, I've sang before like this. Let's do it. This is easy enough. And I felt like for me, I mean, my partner will tell you, Scott will say that languages are not his thing. So it was nice to be able to help guide him through a task as opposed to hmm him helping me with certain strength tasks. So it, I felt like it was a good leg to pull my weight and, and a little bit more. Hmm. So has being on the show opened up doors for you at all? What's the best thing that's come of it for you, aside from the money and the experience? Um, I don't know how many, I don't know how many doors it's really opened up for me. I think it's a great it's a great anecdote. I think that I, there have been 
there have been attorneys who have been fans of the show and mm -hmm. I've done like Zoom demos and they're like, oh my God, I know you. And I, <laughs> that's just kind it's of fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the... The experience is really the thing. I, the friendships, I met people who were very significant in my life um, through the show. And and it's just, you know, showing you that, God, it's so cheesy that dreams come true. But it's really true. I lived my <laughs> biggest dream. And that's something that nobody can ever take away from me, no matter if they loved us or they hated us. So I think that's that's the biggest thing I got from it. That's awesome. Uh, and, and so I saw <laughs> from your your IMDb page, you might be the first guest that actually has an IMDb page, uh, <laughs> that you wanted to be in musical theater, which would make sense of the of the opera and, and singing. Um, are you is that something you still want to do or? I mean, I would love to do that. I was a musical theater major in college. I auditioned for I've been called back for Broadway. Um, I would love to do that with my life. I, I mean, I would love to just go see a Broadway show at this point. I hope it comes back and comes back very strong. It's one of the things that I think is very difficult. I have some friends who were on stage and, and it's, you know, difficult for the artistic community to go dark like this for such a long time. Um, I, yeah, if I wasn't a lawyer, I would be an actress. I think trials are, you know, theater you can win and that's just competitive theater. True. And I think that's how I ended up where I ended up. True. Do you do much singing still? Um, around the house. <laughs> 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 At karaoke with my friends before it shut down. Uh, so what's your favorite thing to do to unwind? I, I love to, this is, it's kind of boring. I consider myself like an amateur chef. I love to cook. I love to bake. Um, I love to sing when I'm alone that's, we wail out. And I think that that <laughs> it's calming. I think anyone who, who does sing or has something like that, it's, it just sort of grounds you and calms you down whenever life gets a little stressful and it just sort of makes you feel like, you know, it's not all that bad. Uh, so that's, those are the things I like to do in my spare time, free time. And those are all things that you can do while the rest of the world is shut down. True. What's your, go -to, what's your go-to? What's your go-to thing to sing about or sing uh, when you're when you're cooking or baking? Um, I think it just sort of depends on the mood that you're in. Is it a Broadway day? Is it a you know Kelly Clarkson day? Who knows? <laughs> Might be an opera day. day. If you're it's feeling rarely, especially it's dramatic. <laughs> if, if I am feeling, if I'm making something especially fancy, it's an opera day. Like a really fancy Italian meal. Right. If it's a risotto, <laughs> perhaps it's an opera day. You never know. Uh, so what's one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? Oh, um, one thing that I've learned about myself, I think it's, an, I think I learned it. I think I learned from the race that I'm capable of doing a whole lot more than I thought I was. I didn't realize that I was saying I wasn't capable, but I'm much more capable than I, than I believed. And I think that mm -hmm. COVID has made me appreciate, you know, the things that you take for granted. I think I joke around with one of my best friends. We were in a 
trivia league every like Tuesday night at a bar. Mm -hmm. And it was one of our favorite things to do. There were six of us. We're this little team. We were called Bunny Massacre. We'll come back with a vengeance when time allows. Um, but after that, we sometimes would go do karaoke. And I remember my friend saying, you know, let's do it next week because he had to wake up really early the next morning. And then next week never came. So I think that one of the things that I've learned to appreciate is, you know, the 3D world and 3D friendships. But I think that <laughs> Zoom, I, I also should have learned to buy stock in Zoom because I think that that is so valuable and so beneficial to be able to still have face-to-face -face time with people and still yeah. connect with people, even if you're not physically connecting with people. And I think it just keeps everybody sane and healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the world can be a very lonely place. And I think as long as we still stay connected with one another, that that's really one of the most valuable things out there. Yeah, can't, can't disagree with that. Um, that the whole Zoom deep. thing has been a very, uh, I don't know, it's a... It's not not like being in three D world as you put it, but but it's it's pretty significant. Agree. Well, I think we need to wrap up, but okay. it has been a lot of fun having you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks again to Brooke Camhai for joining us on Lawyerly. And thanks to our show sponsor, Disco. Join us again next time on the Lawyerly Podcast. We've got some great stuff coming up, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep, and the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Kennedy. <laughs>